This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Luc-Henrique Gomez. Luc is The Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor, and he joined me to talk in-depth about the RoboDebt Royal Commission hearings. We delve into the latest evidence that's been given from senior public servants as well as ministers from the time. Luke tells us what we have learned and what we're still yet to learn. It is my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome onto this show, Uncommon Sense, the wonderful Luke Enrique Gomez. Luke is The Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor, and he has been doing a lot of reporting and tweeting about the RoboDebt Royal Commission and the hearings that have been happening over the last few weeks, but also even prior to that, before the end of the year. And we all might be familiar with RoboDebt to some degree, what it was, why it was set up and what happened, what were the real-world effects of RoboDebt, But we're going to refresh your memory anyway to begin with because this is quite a complex area and once you delve into the detail through the Royal Commission hearings, you'll see that the devil really is in the detail and the documents. So I am really pleased to welcome back onto the show Luc-Henrique Gomez to talk all things RoboDebt and the Royal Commission. Hi there, Luc, and how are you today? I'm very good, Amy. It's always good to be on, so thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I've been so impressed with all of your coverage of this issue or the the hearings at least because it's so big. There's so much going on and I sat down and watched one day's worth of hearings and it was quite riveting. Mm. Even the, the moments where you thought maybe that could be a bit dry, it was actually truly interesting to see what the responses were from the witnesses and how the King's Council was approaching the questioning, the line of questioning. It seemed like a bit of a dance at times, the language that was being used and the setup of questions. So I can't wait to get into some of that, some of the exchanges, which were quite fascinating, Luke. But could you please, if you don't mind, take us through what RoboDebt, now that we know what it is, and it was a an illegal program, but at the time supposedly was thought to be legal, was set up by the federal government. What was RoboDebt and what came before it? Okay. Well, I mean, I'll try and explain this in sort of high-level terms so people's eyes don't start um, <laughs> glazing over a bit. It can be a bit complicated, but basically I guess the key points to think about are if people who receive Centrelink welfare payments have to generally report their income on a fortnightly basis. And so that's so, for those who haven't been on Centrelink before, that's basically so that Centrelink can calculate how much in welfare payments you'll receive each fortnight because it's determined by how much other income you might earn. So one way that Centrelink used to check how people Um, were declaring their income and basically whether or not they were doing it correctly was to check the records between the the tax office and the records that people had um, declared on a fortnightly basis. So Centrelink officers, um, compliance workers, would um, get this data from the the tax office, which would be generally um, PAYG data over an entire year, determining how much a person had uh, earned and they would essentially average it out over um, a a whole year um, and then compare that with um, how much a person had um, declared directly to Centrelink and check if it was correct. But then if there was a, you know, a really big discrepancy which suggested, oh, maybe the person didn't declare their income correctly, they would um, contact the person's employer or basically try and get other evidence first to determine whether or not the potential problem in the reporting was correct or not. Um, and that um, that method is the method that had been used by Centrelink and its previous agencies for um, decades. Um, what changed in 2015 was that the government used, uh, the coalition government basically got advice saying, oh, well, we think we could um, get a whole bunch more revenue for the budget and we could, you know, supposedly catch a whole bunch more people who were supposedly misreporting their income to Centrelink if rather than checking um, 
with um, banks or checking with employers to see if the, the income was correct, we just use that annual tax figure uh, and put all the work and all the onus on the Centrelink recipient. So this is, you know, basically a reverse of the onus of proof. So to put it in really crude terms, what Centrelink started doing was taking the um, tax office annual figure of how much you might have earned over 12 months and compared it to how much you said you earned each fortnight, which is an average, um, you'd have to average out that annual income and then said, these don't match up. Um, so we're gonna issue you with a debt um, and you have to prove to us by getting those um, bank statements or pay slips that I mentioned earlier, you have to prove to us that you don't have a debt. Um, and that method was called income averaging. Um, and it just so turns out that that is not a legal way to, to raise a debt under social security law. And as a result, hundreds of thousands of people were issued uh, unlawful debts and the whole thing ended in a, a court settlement in the federal court of about $1.8 billion. And it is shocking to me to think that it wasn't seen to be problematic from the beginning, at least at the higher levels, because we know from some of the testimony that the middle level people did raise concerns. Because when you think about those who might be on a Centrelink payment, for example, you might have age pensioners, you could have uh, people on JobSeeker who might have some work some kind of casual work, but not enough to get them by. So they have to supplement their income through JobSeeker or they're looking for a more permanent job. You know, these kinds of people and students, they don't really have, especially if they're casuals, regular, consistent fortnightly incomes. They would often have variables. You're not going to get the same hours of shifts every fortnight, are you, if you're a casual worker? No. And that was something that was put to Alan Tudge I believe, about this idea that surely you should have recognised that most people don't earn the same money in two weeks if they're on that low, insecure income type of work. And he kind of, I don't know, I think he deflected it a little bit, but it made it sound like he hadn't really recognised that was the case. And I don't know, I just wondered if you had observations around those super obvious to some people flaws with the plan mm. to average out a yearly figure into fortnightly amounts? I mean, it's, it's kind of, it has been a slightly surreal experience watching the Royal Commission. Um, and I was, I didn't really, I wasn't the social affairs reporter at The Guardian in 2017 when the, the whole thing sort of kicked off into a massive controversy. But I, I must imagine that the, the, the reporters and the welfare recipients specifically, but also advocates must have just been banging their heads against the wall because w the way that it's kind of come out in the hearings makes it so plain how um, unfair it is, how obviously um, outrageous it is to say, look, here's what you earned over 12 months. We've averaged it out into um, 26 fortnights. Um, here's what you said you earned each fortnight over a particular time. And so prove to us why the average, uh, the average figure is different to the figure you reported. Like there are many reasons why that mm. could be the case. Like, as you said, it's obvious people on JobSeeker, AusStudy and Youth Allowance in particular are generally not working consistent hours or, or certainly many are not, right? Like particularly people on, people on JobSeeker, um, by definition, they're not working full time. So, um, that we're talking about seasonal workers and casual workers. Um, and this was known within the, the department as well, like um, the, the Department of Social Services, which kind of manages social security policy as opposed to Centrelink Department of Human Services, which kind of runs Centrelink. The people in social services knew that this was clearly going to be something that threw up um, inaccurate um, calculations. Um, but... And that, this is where it really gets quite sinister, to be honest, is there was not the consideration about whether or not, you know, this was a fair way of, of doing it and, you know, whether or not the, the government pretty much had sufficient evidence to be accusing people of owing money. That was not the... The question of fairness was not really a question that really entered the minds of Alan Tudge or Scott Morrison, who I'm sure we'll talk about, or even the um, many of the people who put forward the policy um, at the higher levels. That was the, the, that wasn't the consideration. Where it clearly is 
just not fair at all, right? Like, mm. but you don't have sufficient basis to, to tell someone, oh, yeah, you owe us money. It's a completely, it's a complete guessing game, to be honest. So, um, no, it's been very um, interesting seeing a lot of the public servants and the the politicians being quizzed on that fact because now, I guess, in hindsight, they don't really have a a clear justifiable reason for how this is was ever fair how this these calculations could ever ever be in a fair basis for a program like this yeah yeah it reminds me of some testimony we heard which was last year in December from a former mid-level official at the department of social services his name is andrew whitecross and he according to his own testimony had claimed that he was told to water down the concerns he had about the scheme's legality and fairness, mm. as well as the estimated budget savings. He he says he was told to water down those concerns that he raised multiple times, quite forcefully, he claims, and says that the acting Deputy Secretary, Catherine Hulbert, was directing him to to change his advice to, as they've said, water down his advice and... I guess there was disagreement around that with Catherine saying she didn't recall ever using that kind of language and she didn't recall giving him a direction, whereas Whitecross said, I took it as a direction. We had a disagreement in the conversation about that. I believe the policy wasn't well developed and lacked merit and we should be fairly forceful in communicating that. And uh, unfortunately, obviously, people who did raise concerns like... Mm. Andrew there in the mid-levels of the public service didn't get through. Like, you know, were there other instances you've heard, Luke, about people raising concerns at the lower levels? Yeah, there are. And I think it's useful just to sort of, um, uh, I sort of briefly touched on the timeline here, but just to, to put this in a bit of context for people. So the program started in 2015, in the middle of 2015. And so the, it was worked up for the 2015 budget and it kind of been proposed in late 2014. We didn't know any of this before the Royal Commission, but we now know that there was legal advice sought about this program in 2014 internally within the Department of Social Services and that found that this program would likely be unlawful. Um, so it would need to have, the government would need to bring a bill to Parliament if they want and change the law if they wanted to have it happen. Now, that obviously never happened, and it is still quite unclear how this legal advice was shelved, um, and that's something that we'll, um, I guess, continue to explore at the Royal, Royal Commission as that goes on. But um, Andrew Whitecross is, is a key figure in the sort of that DSS issue. Um, the legal advice from 2014, um, again, that was Department of Social Services uh, lawyers who said, no, this is not something that we should be um, doing. It would be unlawful. Again, that was basically, that just disappeared. I mentioned in 2017 being a key moment in this uh, whole saga because that is when really people started to know that this program was happening. It had been running in the background for about a year and a half before anyone really quite understood that. Um, but by early 2017, it was uh, briefly the biggest story in the country. Um, at that time as well, um, there were um, people, there was a Centrelink officer, a woman by the name of Colleen Taylor, um, who appeared at the Royal Commission late last year. She um, wrote a 2000 word uh, email to the top of the Department of Human Services. Colleen Taylor's job was to check debts. Um, she'd been doing it for uh, many years and she um, wrote to the top person in her department. So, you know, there's a department of about 20,000 people. She is very low level officer. And she wrote a warning letter saying, these debts are inaccurate. It's unfair. The processes are wrong. This process that we're doing is just leading to all these problems. Um, and her concerns as well were essentially ignored. Um, so you, there has been this dynamic of lower and middle uh, level people within the department, uh, within um, well, within the public service, mm. raising concerns, and people above them uh, not doing anything about it. We've had 
several instances of legal advice that was sought by um, public servants, which was never acted on. Um, it's been quite extraordinary, really, um, and we'll get to the politicians, uh, I'm sure, but yeah. it's been a real uh, eye-opener in terms of the public service as well, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. It's certainly not giving them a, a really good reputation here. It's not a flattering depiction of the internal workings of the public service, certainly at least in this instance. One other department I noted that had raised a, a red flag, although this was quite a lot later, in early 2017, we heard at the Royal Commission from two ATO, Australian Tax Office officials, Tyson Fawcett and Michael Kerr-Brown, and they said that they had concerns about the way that the annual PAYG data was being used to average out across fortnights. And they were talking about what they did to raise their concerns. And uh, apparently Fawcett, who was the director of data management at the ATO, sent an email to DHS, the people who would be his colleagues or counterparts in early 2017 once this had hit the news, telling them to, quote, cease and desist until the ATO was assured the data was being used legally. I mean, that is pretty strong terminology to send off to a department to say, you know, we're not happy with how this data is being used and we need to look into this. Do we have any idea what happened after that, after the ATO raised their concerns? Yes, we do. So essentially um, that email, which was uh, quite... That, as you said, that's incredibly strong language. I should um, point out to you know people not super uh, across the, the finer details of the public service hierarchy. Um, Fawcett, uh, depart, despite having director in his title, that's not an overly senior member of the ATO. Um, but the response he received was basically um, a DS, DHS person saying, um, uh, to paraphrase, basically saying, no, we're, we're not going to, to stop the program. Um, the government needs us to continue with this um, debt-raising activity uh, and offering to have a meeting with the ATO, which is ultimately what happened in the end. Um, and the commissioner basically um, said, you know, that this sounded very much like um, DHS using uh, kind of... Um, a sense that this was a um, program strongly supported by the coalition as a way to shut down any potential concerns or dissent raised by other agencies, which is essentially the case because even though the ATO is not a main player in this saga, it, it, the data it held was crucial to mm. this whole scheme going ahead and it has obligations for um, the data that it uh, provides in a, any kind of data matching um programs to be used lawfully. And I think the ATO people understood, as we mentioned earlier, that if this is data that applies to an entire financial year uh, and it's been used to check income that has been reported on a fortnightly basis, the data is not necessarily fit for purpose. So they were concerned, but in the end, um, the ATO, uh, well, didn't really... <laughs> do anything beyond send those emails, um, that those concerns kind of fell by the wayside in the end, which has kind of been uh, a theme of, of the, the hearings throughout the, you know, the four and a half years that this program went ahead. Yeah. And I think a lot of people listening might be wondering, why is everyone so doggedly determined to push on? You know, when we hear these red flags and, oh, gosh, is it legal? Is the data accurate? Lots of different concerns being raised across multiple departments in different roles and areas. And I think it's quite helpful to go back to why the scheme was brought forward and where it came from, because we did hear about Matthias Corman, who was the finance minister at the time, and he specifically had asked the government, in particular, I think it was Alan Tudge, is there any more we can get out of welfare compliance? And he was looking at budget savings and there was an impetus at the time to save money and it was part of the coalition's re-election strategy was living within your means and mm. being, I guess, more austere in government spending. And so it seems that 
it was in particular being sold as a revenue raising measure internally. And that was one of those key lines that um, White Cross had pushed up against was also the statistics, the figures that had been put forward, the estimations of just how much money this scheme would claw back from Mm. the taxpayer and welfare recipients. And essentially, he was saying that according to the estimates we now have that have been shared with the RoboDebt Royal Commission, RoboDebt was expected to add $1.2 billion just to the 2016-17 bottom line. If debts were raised under the older manual person-involved scheme, the one that you described before where a human was reviewing those figures, mm. that number was dropped to $150 million. So we've got $1.2 billion versus $150 million for two different approaches, one being really clearly liable to be inaccurate. It seems like that might have been a driving force, you know, this idea that this government can save money. This government can, you know, look at us, we're cracking down on quote unquote welfare cheats. Do you think that that is potentially one of the motives or one of the kind of unspoken motivations for why this train kept rolling through despite all of the hurdles and red flags that came up? Uh, Yeah, I do completely. I think it's those two points that you kind of touched on. It's the uh, budget savings um, and it's what the coalition perceived to be the political benefit of going after people on uh, on welfare benefits. And that's something that the Royal Commission has uh, explored as well um, throughout the questioning of the public servants and the politicians. A, a sort of thread running throughout it has been this commitment to um, making sure that the proposed budget savings that were... Um, forecast in 2015 when the program started, which was to be about $1.2 billion. Um, and as the program expanded, you mentioned Matthias Coleman asking Alan Tudge for um, any measures that might um, bolster the budget further, and that ended up being the expansion of the robo-debt scheme in late 2016, early um, 2017. That was um, announced in by the coalition in the 2016 federal election as a promise, um, basically Um, to do with the the budget bottom line, but based on further savings from from welfare welfare benefits and welfare compliance, these were um, crucial to uh, the coalition's uh, political strategy, uh, both in terms of the way that it presented itself as tough on welfare, but also managing the budget but the, 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 the really, I guess, um, they were committed to these savings, which um, regardless of what you think about the fairness of the policy, and I think I sort of made clear what I thought about it earlier, the savings themselves were never going to be realised in the way that was forecast because um, the, the system itself, I mentioned earlier, relied on this reverse onus we say we think you owe this much money, this, here's a debt letter, prove otherwise. Um, and it, in actual fact, because the debts were inaccurate, a lot of those people simply did not owe, them, owe that money. So mm-hmm. um, if you using the calculations of annual um, and someone's annual income um, compared to what they reported fortnightly and use that to model how much money you think you can make, that's never going to be correct because that's those some of those that debt just literally is not real. It, it's you you may assert the debt, but as the process went on, people would provide pay slips, and that money that you think that you are going to make uh, as the government was whittled away. So, in terms of the complete catastrophe of all of this, there's the fairness issue. There's the going after welfare recipients in this horrific way um, and there's this dogged commitment to budget savings but uh, overlaying all that the savings that they thought they were going to to make were never going to eventuate to the the level that they expected anyway and that I think is going to be something that the Royal Commission actually touches on in the um, the next public hearing which I think I expect to cover the 2019 period um, even then when the, the government when the, the whole scheme was under a legal um, challenge by Victoria Legal Aid the government was still trying to find ways to potentially expand this chasing these 
these savings, which were, you know, moving um, further and further uh, out of reach. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that will be covered because it's such a big question and it makes a lot of sense what you've just said about how flawed that figure is, that estimation is. Anecdotally, when we're thinking about the types of things that the welfare recipients had to do to prove their innocence or, or the fact that they did not actually have a debt, depending on how far back it went, they might have had to go to their bank and request bank statements, which in many cases were now on microfilm that they were that old. Like I've heard that anecdotally. They might not have kept their pay slips depending on how long the legal period was for you to keep them under the ATO rules. So there's a lot of challenges that that brought up and a lot of stress that that brought up for people who were suddenly sent a letter out of the blue saying, you know, you weren't paying attention to detail. You've misreported your income, prove that you didn't. And it raised this question for me and it came up in the questioning of Alan Tudge because he and the council and commissioner were talking about two different things. They were talking about welfare fraud and welfare compliance. And there is a very interesting and significant <coughs> distinction between the two. And it came up when they were talking about Alan Tudge's appearance on A Current Affair in December 2016, when he said something quite controversial and it was discussed in that hearing he infamously said that if a person is doing the wrong thing, quote, we'll find you, we'll track you down, and you will have to repay those debts, and you may end up in prison. And the questioning was, well, that was relating to welfare fraud. That would be the outcome for fraud, where someone is knowingly committing fraud and, you know, gaming the system, and there would be potentially a whole kind of apparatus around this fraud, whereas welfare compliance and non-compliance is really about human error and people not doing the right thing, you know, as a one-off or by mistake. It seems that there's a bit of a to and fro and a discussion about this between Justin Gregory KC, who's the Royal Commission's senior counsel assisting, as well as the commissioner and Alan Tudge, when they were basically saying, why haven't you distinguished in your public communications and interviews the difference between welfare fraud and the the instances of that and just how significant welfare fraud is in the scheme of things versus welfare compliance, given that welfare compliance is the majority of what they're actually talking about. And the figure that came out there was that welfare fraud accounted for just 0.1% of all transactions in the system that he oversaw. So I wonder if you could take us through that discussion and what it really told us about the way that Alan Tudge and his department also communicated the robo-debt scheme to the public and the way that it was set up in the media. Yeah, so I think just to sort of uh, put Alan Tudge's um, version of that, the current affair yeah. uh, interview, you know, forward, he says that, and... I guess with some understanding of how uh, tabloid television works, I, I, I do find this to be somewhat believable. He says that in that quote you read out where he basically suggested people would go to jail, he was asked a question about, you know, what would you say to people who are deliberately uh, ripping off the taxpayer? And that was the answer he gave. And then that quote was kind of put at the start of the program. And then the program itself was about the welfare compliance program, which became known as RoboDebt, rather than other measures that the government had also introduced at this time. They, you know, they embedded the AFP in Centrelink um, and created this task force and a bunch of other things which were, you know, supposedly going after more high-level fraud. So he sort of basically, his defence is, I was taken out of context and he says that he cleared that up in, in subsequent interviews. With that caveat, I mean, he was facing fairly significant and intense questioning from the commissioner about the broader um, strategy would appear to be a broader media strategy of conflating the two issues, welfare fraud, you know, systematic fraud where you misrepresent things, whether that's whether or not you're in a relationship or other things in order to get benefits that you're you know, not legally entitled to, as opposed to what the robo-debt scheme was really about, which is about, you know, people making misreporting their income on a fortnightly basis in what was actually at the time a fairly complicated way that you had mm. to report your income, right? So, More like an accounting error. 
Yeah, essentially. And, and you know, that, there was a spectrum to that, but, you know, it was always considered to be sort of administrative mistakes by the person rather than any kind of incredibly nefarious stuff. But if you look at some of the rhetoric from the, the coalition at the time, um, there was a, a con continual conflation between these two concepts, and not just from Alan Tudge, also from Scott Morrison. And Scott Morrison, for example, who declared himself the strong welfare cop on the beat when he came into the portfolio in early 2015. He'd just been immigration minister um, and he, he was then moved to social services and he, you know, said he, you know, he would go on talkback radio and talk about some of these measures which went on to become robo-debt in the context of broader welfare fraud. He, he would read out the number for people to report welfare fraud. All of this stuff was kind of conflated together and what that did at least according to some of the questioning from the Royal Commission is give people a sense that they should just agree with whatever it was that Centrelink was saying and that is already a sort of position that many people on Centrelink benefits have for, for many reasons you know not everybody is of means not everybody can as you mentioned before go back and get pay slips and bank statements some people don't have the you know, the ability to to do that. And so if presented with a letter saying, we believe you owe us $6,000, some people will just say, oh, okay, well, mm. I must. And if you overlay that with this kind of stigma that is, is um, uh, created by telling people that, you know, um, the people caught up in this program potentially might go to jail or, um, you know, are welfare cheats, it creates this culture where um, people are, you know, really genuinely frightened to, well, defend themselves, get, get that information. And we heard many people who have appeared at the Royal Commission say that after their robo-debt experience, they decided that they wouldn't seek benefits, uh, welfare payments, social security payments anymore. They didn't feel like that was something that they wanted to go through. That was, you know, that is all part of this story, to be honest. Yeah, that's such a really important point to be making. As you said, it is possible that the ACA misrepresented Alan Tudge's quote. It was interesting to see, though, that the follow-up questions from Justin Gregory and the Commissioner were quite sceptical around his efforts to correct yes. the record. And they said that, I'd suggest it to you that it was an easy fix, that you could put out something very clear because you had knowledge of actual fraud cases and it was minuscule, said Justin Gregory. He said, you could go further. You could actually say in your interviews that fraud represents 0.1%. I'm suggesting that the reason you didn't do it was the overlay of fraud made it more likely that people would engage with the system and repay the money. There was a particular strategy to which Tudge replied, I disagree. So there did seem to be, I guess, a clash there in the way that it was uh, interpreted, his actions. But another area that I was really interested in on that day of discussion and, and testimony was actually something that didn't get reported on much. And I just wanted your opinion. And it touched on the element of what is ministerial responsibility and what is a minister's expectations of his staff and his legal counsel and what he expects them to do, I guess, without his knowledge when they encounter an issue, what would the steps be that they should take? And one example was given was that there was a, a key conference, a law conference of very, you know, senior figures in the legal world in this very kind of narrow area of expertise relating to administrative law. And a senior silk, quote unquote, was giving a, a talk and a paper saying, well, actually, I think that this robo-debt scheme isn't legal. And there were multiple, you know, senior lawyers from Alan Tudge's department in the room listening to that talk. And it was put to Alan Tudge, well, don't you think that those people should have done something once they heard this really senior figure give a very extensive paper outlining his reasons why he thinks it's not legal? What, what are your expectations of your staff? And I guess that was quite an interesting and illuminating moment for me because you know, it took a long time for him to get to a point where he could explain what he thought it might be. But essentially, it was that they might go away and resolve the problem without his knowledge. You know, they would go away and maybe discuss it with the 
Department of Social Security because they're the ones who really had carriage of this policy. It seems like because there were multiple departments involved, definitely obviously DHS and DSS, it's hard to find where responsibility lies when there are two departments involved. One is about the policy and one is about the implementation. Mm. And I wondered if you could, I guess, expand on what that raises and also Alan Tudge's response to questions about ministerial responsibility and his level of accountability for his staff's either actions or inaction. Yeah, I thought, um, and I guess the other thing to add is, you know, Alan Tudge was basically also was asked, well, if these people in your department um, didn't heed these uh, warnings from at the, the law conferences, uh, Peter Hanks, KC, um, if, if you, they didn't do anything about that, if they didn't check the legality, isn't that ultimately your responsibility mm. as the minister? And he basically rejected that assertion. I thought his response about what he expect, as you said, how he expected the process to play out after the, the lawyers from the department had seen these legal concerns was a kind of convoluted answer about, mm. yeah, well, they should go off and maybe do some uh, look into it and then maybe if they are absolutely sure that this opinion is correct, then, then the secretary should raise it with med the secretary of the department, which is the top person in the department. Christian Porter, who was the, the person who was in social services as the minister at the time, he, he had a much more sort of straightforward answer, which was, well, he would expect the uh, department to... Uh, get some analysis of this of this legal opinion directly, and then ideally raise it with the the, the minister with a, with a brief, which is kind of a very he had, gave a much more direct answer about what his expectations were. I think, to be honest, um, part of that reflects the fact that um, I think Alan Tudge was under a lot more pressure at the Royal Commission than than Christian Porter was. Alan Tudge was there for a, a, a day and a half and was really trying to kind of deflect any kind of responsibility ultimately um, falling back on him. The other point you, you you asked about was, I guess, where all the responsibility lies and how it's complicated by the fact that there are two departments involved. That is undoubtedly the case. So, you know, social services are responsible for social security law, human services now, Services Australia, they kind of run things. So centrally, mm -hmm. they make sure the payments go out the door, they check people are getting the right payments, they do the debt compliance, that sort of thing. They don't theoretically make social security policy. And that intersection between those two departments has, has caused um, quite a lot of confusion throughout this entire saga. I mean, I suspect that there will be plenty of blame to go around when um, we get to the end of all of this. But it, it has made things in incredibly complicated um, and has allowed some key questions to remain unanswered. We, we are at the point now where things like what happened to the, the legal warnings in 2014 about this scheme from DSS, why were they not taken up by DHS? No one has really actually given a clear answer to that question and there's no paper anymore. There are no documents that seem to answer that question. So we are kind of getting to this point now where this relationship between these two departments is so dysfunctional that we're finding it difficult to find out, I guess, who took the ultimate decision that led to this first being implemented. Uh, well, we know it was Scott Morrison, but what was the advice that changed that allowed him to go forward with that? And then at certain points throughout the whole scandal as well, that, that sort of um, dynamic has, has kept, kept arising. So... Yeah, the, the, the fact that there are two departments involved who don't really seem to have a clear understanding of what their actual role was and now both with public servants and ministers who are trying to say that it was the other department who were responsible has made for a fairly confusing watch at times. Indeed. Well, you know, it's this idea that there was legislative change required for this to be a legal scheme and then suddenly it just drops off the policy documents and the budgetary documents. And it is really interesting to see, you know, I think it was, was it Catherine Campbell was saying that she just didn't notice that it wasn't there anymore. And yes. but then but then it was raised that she actually was a stickler for detail and she was picking up quite 
unique typos and and things that most people wouldn't have recognized so a lot of people have questioned whether it was realistic for her not to have noticed such a significant detail like a policy requiring legislative change in order for it to be legal there was another person who gave testimony which is the former chief counsel at dhs and that's annette Mussolino. and i know that a lot of people were quite interested in what she might have to say. Did we learn anything new from her testimony? Well, somewhat. I mean, Annette Mussolino had a very crucial role and I should point out she's she's still in the um, Department of Services Australia now as the, um, uh, I think, Chief Operating Officer, but she was Chief Counsel throughout most of the robo-debt saga and then she was in another role, um, I think, a general manager type role in um, Services Australia towards the end. She She's facing some serious questions, I think it must be said, about um, her role in um, dealing with the legal warnings that services or the Department of Human Services received throughout this scandal. Um, one thing that we haven't really touched on, but um, there is the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which... Um, if you want to appeal a settlement decision, that's the tribunal you go to. And there were uh, dozens of cases being turned, um, being overturned at the AAT um, by people saying this scheme is unlawful. This was happening throughout 2017. And those warnings made their way to Annette Mussolino. Um, and she faced some pretty serious questioning from Catherine Holmes because. The, the, the question is, well, if the AAT is saying this is unlawful, um, why didn't they go and get more authoritative legal advice? You've got to remember that the only legal advice they had at the, this point about this game is, is from um, internal lawyers within the department and with all due respect to those people, that, that is not really um, considered an authoritative legal advice where there are questions raised. You mentioned Peter Hanks um, before the um, top silk, who um, it was noted uh, wrote a constitutional law book which uh, both the commissioner and Christian Porter had used to, to uh, during law school. Like you've got mm. someone that esteemed saying this program is unlawful, yet the department hasn't sought legal advice from the government, Australian government solicitor or the solicitor general. And, and Mussolino's response was essentially, oh, well, um, we thought that this issue was sorted out because they'd received new legal advice in 2017 from the department's lawyers saying, oh, this scheme actually we think is, is OK. And Catherine Holmes, the um, commissioner, essentially said, well, how could you possibly believe this was sorted out? You hadn't done anything to sort it out. You've got these decisions happening in the AAT, which I should add um, very few people knew about because those decisions are not published. Um, and they hadn't sought legal advice and they didn't seek legal advice until um, proper legal advice, really, until uh, the start of 2019 in response to a, a, a federal court challenge. And then in the middle of 2019, they got advice from the Solicitor General. So we're talking about a period in 2017 where they could have stopped it by getting the opinion of the Solicitor General or the Australian Government Solicitor, um, Australian um, Government Solicitor, and they didn't. Uh, and Mussolino, as Chief Counsel, um, is somebody who uh, will have to answer, and we expect she will return to the Royal Commission again um, to give more evidence. Um, so that gives you a sense of, I guess, how much interest the Royal Commission has in, in her activities during this period. And I was also interested in her comment that those AAT decisions had, quote, cut both ways, as in Mm. some had fallen in their favour and some against. And that was also seemingly a response to, well, why didn't you take this seriously that the AAT was making decisions saying that this wasn't lawful? I think that's quite an inadequate response personally to say that, oh, well, some of them were pro our scheme and (laughs) when some definitely weren't. I wanted to close out the conversation talking a little bit about the political implications because we did see Alan Tudge resign just recently and he gave his speech in Parliament, his valedictory speech, talking about his time in Parliament and as Minister 
And he did say something which got people a little bit upset, which was, quote, my passion has always been in social policy rather than economic or security policy, the traditional liberal focal areas. Mm. So he seemed to sell himself as a person who, you know, had an affinity with the area that he was working in, which was obviously social security and welfare and human services. Given his involvement in robo-debt and obviously ministerial responsibility essentially falling to him, what do you think of the way that he's represented his career and and also, I guess, the other political reputations that we've seen on the line over the last couple of months? Uh, well, on Alan Tudge, uh, I mean, I guess he's sort of talking to his own personal interests and I, I can't really, you know, he, he mentioned, I think, um, when he talked about social policy, he didn't mention uh, the unsurprisingly, he didn't mention the robot scheme specifically, but he, he talked about, you know, the integrity of the, the welfare system and also he mentioned the cashless debit card. I guess it, it is entirely possible, plausible, um, that people who are, um, have, a you know, support for those policies or ideas, concepts would uh, consider themselves to have an affinity with social policy or be interested in it. So I, I guess I can't question his uh, his sincerity or, or, or not. I don't really know. But I, I know that uh, his record in terms of running the robo-debt scheme at the, the most pivotal point certainly left a lot to be desired. We didn't touch on his department's basically going after people that complained about it by obtaining the personal information of those welfare recipients and in some cases sharing them with journalists. We didn't touch on his departments uh, and his failure, I think, to to um, call an investigation into one person who had taken their own life uh, following mm-hmm. a, a, the receipt of a robo-debt. And we did, I guess, talk about the fact that the, the, the central premise for the robo-debt scheme uh, was based on something that was completely unfair and unjust, which is that you accuse people of owing the government money without sufficient evidence to do that. So his, uh, I think whatever his interests are on in, in social policy, I mean, he will ultimately, I think, be the robotet scheme will be a crucial part of what people remember in terms of his service on that um, on that front. In terms of the other ministers, I think, uh, well, I guess uh, Scott Morrison now has um, <laughs> fairly, a fairly complicated. Uh, um, he has an affinity with many portfolios. Well, he does. He has a sort of. Uh, 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 there are a few barnacles on his um, on his boat, so to speak, that I think might lay there for for a while. Um, it, and he gave I, rather verbose testimony, didn't he? So it didn't really look that great. It didn't look that great. I don't think he really cares, to be honest. Um, he, he seemed to be enjoying himself at the Royal Commission when he, he appeared, um, basically apologised for all, almost nothing or rather didn't really accept that he'd made any errors or, or mistakes and everything he was doing was for the right reasons. Um, I guess that's kind of what people might come to expect from the former Prime Minister at this point. Um, the other uh, you know, the other individuals I think, I think we'll, we'll hear a bit about Stuart Robert uh, in the next hearings uh, later in the month. That will be interesting because Stuart Robert was kind of responsible for managing the whole fallout of this when it finally, uh, you know, came back to bite the government um, when, you know, they lost in, in the courts. Um, so we'll, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, Christian Porter, who was Social Services Minister at the, the time the scheme was in most controversy, I think perhaps gave a slightly more reflective appearance than anybody else so far. I mean, he still had a caveat about accepting responsibility, but he did say he he accepted some responsibility for what happened. He kind of gave this slightly uh, odd answer where he, he, he was almost presenting himself as some kind of detective that would nearly got to the bottom of what was going wrong but didn't quite ask the right questions and didn't get there in the end. Um, which I, I guess, you know, was in some ways reflect, you know, it showed some self-reflection, but, um, you know, it was also kind of, he he also said, oh, but I understand why I didn't ask those questions, which is to say that basically the public servants didn't give him enough information for him to do that, which mm-hmm. I suppose is kind of maybe a little bit of an excuse, but to be a bit fairer to Christian Porter than Alan Tudge, his you know, as the department, as the Minister of Social Services, he's responsible for a much bigger part of uh government with a whole bunch of competing interests and and policies so i think 
that's reflected by the fact that he was at the Royal Commission for about half a day rather than a day and a half as Alan Touch was. Mm. But I, that's basically the closest we've gotten, Amy, to to someone saying, yes, I messed up. <laughs> Uh, as a as a minister, so I wow. guess we'll, we'll take it. I suppose we will take it. Yeah, it is quite shocking to hear that. I guess it'll also be really interesting to see what happens in this next round of hearings, which is only I think a week away. You say that that's covering the next period of time. How much longer do these commission hearings have to run? At the moment, we've only got um, one more hearing scheduled, um, which is from the twentieth of February to. March 10, I suspect this will probably be the last block, um, although I don't believe that's been set in stone. The Commission's supposed to report in, um, I think, early May, so probably need a bit of time to to weigh up all the evidence. And, yes, uh, the actual topics haven't been announced for that those hearings say next week, but I do suspect that they will be based on the... Uh, focused on the 2019-2020 period, which is when the government faced a court challenge which eventually brought the scheme undone and was also forced to accept that it would need to pay people back and face the class action as well. So that will be a very interesting period and I think because of the fact that the government then by this point, by 2019, has conclusive evidence from, you know, legal advice from the government solicitor and from the solicitor general. It'll be very interesting to see, to hear the public service and the ministers perhaps explain why it took so long for them to actually concede that this was all in error. That will be, I think, one of the big focuses of those hearings kicking off for Monday. I look forward to it and uh, I implore everyone to follow Luke on Twitter so you can follow along with Luke's tweets and your excellent articles for The Guardian, Luke. Thank you so much for taking the time to delve into this issue in so much detail. I know, as you pointed out, we didn't get to cover a whole range of other areas, some of which was related to Rochelle Miller's testimony. So if people wanted to get more detail on that, they can certainly do that by checking out your reporting as well as Rick Morton's in the Saturday paper. And you can also watch those hearings back if you are so inclined that you you wanted to watch it. Thank you so much, Luke, again, and I hope to check in with you when we know more. Thanks so much, Amy. I've just been speaking with Luke Enrique Gomez, who is the Guardian Australia's social affairs and inequality editor, and we've just been delving into the RoboDebt Royal Commission and the evidence that's come from the hearings we've heard so far from December through till now, and obviously the uh, final round of hearings coming up next week. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.